Hi there, it's Peter Bregman, and I'm excited to bring back uh, one of my favorite episodes. It's a conversation that I had with Tom Rath, super practical about how we use our energy. It feels really resonant as we enter 2019 to think about how we're caring for our bodies and the energy that we bring to all of the work that we do. And it's particularly resonant for me since I had a bike accident a few weeks ago, and I'm feeling the importance of caring for my body and, and the importance of taking care of that. So again, a very practical episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We are lucky enough to have with us today Tom Rath. If you haven't read any of his books, you really should. You've certainly heard of them, I imagine. He's written five bestsellers. Uh, How Full Is Your Bucket was a beautiful book that he wrote with his grandfather, I believe. A Strengths Finder 2.0. And the current book that we're talking about today, Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. Uh, like all of Tom's writing, it has deep research and lots of heart. Um, he has a personal story that is uh, engaging, and the writing follow suit is also engaging. So we're lucky enough to have Tom with us. Tom, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been looking forward to talking with you. So Tom, let's just start with the big idea of the book. Why did you write Are You Fully Charged? You know, as I've studied engagement in the workplace and human development and well-being quite a bit over the years. Um, I think like a lot of us, you know, I still sit around and ask myself, okay, well, what do I do differently when I wake up tomorrow based on some of these findings? And what are the practical things that I can do to not only make sure that I have a good day, but what I care about most is making sure that I help the people I care about and work with around me to have really good days and hopefully to make a contribution to something that, um, lasts and grows even when I'm not sitting there watching it directly. So I started with that question, and it was timely because uh, there's a lot of research that's come out as we've become better at measuring how people are doing in the moment lately, from wearable devices to smartphones and everything else, that is suggesting that this phenomenon of daily well-being and what we experience each day is very, very different from the way researchers, myself included, used to ask people about how they evaluate their lives overall when they look back over several decades and are more reflective. And the the good news is that um, all these new findings on this daily well-being suggest that there are a lot of practical things we can do in the moment to create better days. Unfortunately, when I asked uh, more than 10,000 people if they had a great deal of physical energy yesterday, just 11% said they had a great deal of physical energy yesterday. So the the challenge is I think most of us kind of do enough to get by on a day-to-day basis, but we're not experiencing work or life at anywhere near an optimal state in terms of being fully charged on a day-to-day basis. So that's what I spent uh, a couple of years digging into and worked on a, the book and just released a documentary around that as well. Yeah, and I've, I've, I've begun, I haven't finished it, but I've begun to watch the documentary, which is fascinating and, and, and well done. And so I, I suggest anyone listening here, the Are You Fully Charged documentary is well worth, well, well worth watching. 
Um, Tom, you know, you said something that I find really interesting. I think it's so important in all of the writing, the writing I do and the writing that you do and, and, and any writing to make it very applicable, that ultimately if we just learn more but don't actually change or have the tools to, to make certain changes or they're unreasonable uh, changes, then, then it's, you know, what's the point of it in a sense? And you're, um, you're very focused on, in, you know, in the moment, the daily satisfaction. And what you just said here, which is that um, people said they have low energy in the moment, and it counters something that I'm, I'm curious about, which is that I think people often make these short-term choices trading off long-term choices, meaning we don't necessarily save for a rainy day because we want to spend the money now. Or I go to a buffet and I eat as much food as I can because what I want to do in the moment is different than what I want to have done by the end of the day. And so I eat whatever I want to and then I feel a little sick. And what I wonder about is why daily satisfaction is so hard for us to to um, land on, because I would think that since it's so short term, so many of our decisions we would make with an eye towards daily satisfaction as opposed to long term. You know, I, I, I completely agree with the thought you had there about, you know, it's we often fall for temptation in the moment and that overrides all of these longer term uh, things that should be in our best interest over time. And, you know, I, I talk about in the, the fully charged book and video that I've been uh, personally battling cancer for 25, 30 years now, and I have all more long-term incentive than anyone to eat the right foods and be more active and sleep and all those types of things. But yet, even in that extreme case, just like people I know who have a family history of heart disease, that doesn't make it much easier to pass on the cheeseburger and French fries and milkshake at lunch today because it's not as immediate right there. What I What I learned through all this research, though, is there are smart ways to connect your momentary choices during the day to near-term incentives that also happen to be aligned with those longer-term interests. So just a real quick example, when I was uh, working on the book, Eat, Move, Sleep, a couple of years ago, my mother calls and invites my wife and uh, kids who were, I think, uh, two and four at the time to go out to lunch with us at a, a new place in downtown uh, Washington, D.C., where she lives. And so we go there. There are only four items on the menu. I think I'm uh, being good by passing on the chocolate-covered donuts and getting the Eggs Benedict instead, which, of course, comes out with all the fried potatoes and um, hollandaise sauce and everything else. And then I eat somebody else's donuts when I finish that. So, what, But then what got my attention a few years ago is two hours after that meal, my daughter, who was four at the time, it's a beautiful day, 70 degrees outside, she's pulling on my sleeve while I'm half asleep on the couch asking me to take her to the park that afternoon. I didn't have the energy I needed to be a good dad that day because I made some really bad choices early on in the day. And as I started to think that through and study the research, scientists have now connected how if you go out and have a, a lunch that's filled with sugary foods, fried foods, for example, you have what they call a high-fat hangover by 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon where you can't function in your work. You can't be as effective in a meeting. Same thing goes for getting a solid night of sleep. It's an investment in being productive the next day, not the first expense that you cut. And you see the same thing with activity and social interactions and so forth. So if we can connect the right very near-term incentives there that also happen to be aligned with longer-term interests, I've found it can work pretty well. 
So how do we manage ourselves in that moment? You know, the moment that it's 930 and I'm thinking I should really go to bed right now in order to get eight hours of sleep, but I want to watch this TV show or I want to write this email or I want to, you know, do whatever. Or that moment that you're sitting with the menu in front of you going, wow, those, you know, eggs with hollandaise sauce really do sound good. How do we manage ourselves in that moment? Well, the, some of the most important choices is, you know, one of my favorite writers and researchers in this space on behavior is Brian Wansink, who wrote the book Mindless Eating and is one of the, the stars of that documentary I mentioned. And he talks about how we have to set defaults and structure the environment around us so that we make more good choices early on in the day to save up any limited willpower we happen to have when it's really tough between 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. And so that starts with... Um, trying to decide on a better restaurant before you even go out to eat. It starts with filling your home and office with healthier choices that you see sitting out on counters like nuts and fruits and vegetables and like and apples instead of candy or bags of chips you keep in your drawer. And so if you can design your environment and, cha- and when you're out and about running through airports, I always carry a pack of mixed nuts or carrots with me. So I know that I can, um, essentially shortcut or circumvent the temptations that I'll inevitably face throughout the day. And so one piece of it is starting with environment and then beginning to connect some of those choices with how if you think about a morning where you were really on and doing well in a meeting or you had a presentation, whatever it might be, think about what were the conditions that led to that. Did you get a good night's sleep? Did you exercise a little bit that morning and that got you a little bit more wound up? And when you can make those hourly and daily connections it starts to get easier. That's great. You know, I have a, a friend, and not everybody's in this income bracket, but a friend who has a personal trainer and and goes to a nutritionist, and she will look at the menus of the restaurants he's going to for business lunches and dinners and email him what he should order. So in some ways, she looks at that environment and takes all the decisions out of it and just says, you know, order these three things and you'll be fine. And he just does what she says. So it's another way of sort of taking yourself out of it or taking the temptation out of it in some ways. You know, you know, I love that. And another simple example we can all do when we're at restaurants is whoever places the first order essentially sets an expectation. And scientists have studied this pretty carefully where if I go ahead and get the cheeseburger and fries, everyone else is more likely to and it gives them permission. So if you want to make a good choice, be the first one to verbally place your order at a table. Not only are you setting in a good default for yourself, but it should subtly influence others over time. I love that research. You know, I just saw research that um, if you are, uh, I, I believe this is the number, but if your seatmate in an airplane orders food, you're, I think, 30% more likely to order food yourself, <laughs> as opposed to if your seatmate doesn't order food, then you probably won't order food. Wow. So, I, you know, it kind of goes along with that same research, which I think is really great. You know, it, it actually brings me to a question that I had as I was reading through Are You Fully Charged, which is, you know, how important community is and the challenge we face of being surrounded by people at work or in our communities who don't share our meaning or don't share our values. And that, you know, how we manage ourselves in those, you know, situations where actually everybody is eating fried food or more than that, you know, you talk about in the book of um, upward comparisons, you know, how how um, difficult upward comparisons are because they make us feel much worse when I'm looking at myself and I go, well, you know, I'm making X amount, but that other person's making X times two. And so now I'm going to feel badly about myself, even if X amount is fine for me. And, 
and you know how how we could like I agree with you. I know that that's a really stupid thing to do, and yet it's very difficult not to. And and oftentimes we are surrounded by people who don't necessarily share our outcomes and results or our values or our meaning. Yeah, you know that's something that I've, I've followed for many years in terms of a lot of the research on how social networks affect us, even when we don't realize it. And uh, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler have done great work on how that extends all the way out to three degrees. So if a friend of a friend of a friend becomes obese, you're 10% more likely to become obese. Same applies to well-being and smoking and the like. So there is a degree to which we're essentially just pawns in a social network that we're embedded in. And to that end, it's important to think about how do you infuse a few more positive choices or stronger and better interactions into that social network because it does reverberate far beyond what you see. And we all we all at least have the power to make that choice about how we're going to set the tone in our next interaction with another human being, which is which can be a great thing. But it's also important to step back and say, you know, where are the nodes in your social network where you're always kind of inheriting secondhand stress from someone else and it's a bad thing for your day? And what are the places where when you spend time with this set of people, you're far more likely to make destructive choices and to be aware of that when you at least kind of minimize the influence and time because that will happen. And from what I've seen, there's to some degree, I mean, other than removing ourselves from the network or relationship, it will influence us when we spend more and more time with people. You know, Tom, it makes me think, I wonder if we can imprint certain people in our networks as opposed to just taking the network en masse. What I mean by that is, you know, the the story, I don't even know if this is true, but, you know, a duckling will uh, basically consider its mother whatever first animal it sees, you know, and so it, it, it'll, you know, that's kind of old children's book, Are You My Mommy? And I wonder whether there's a way, and I wonder if you have any research around this or you've seen any research around this, where I might have a social network of, you know, billionaires and, uh, and, you know, people who are minimum wage workers, and I choose to, in a sense, imprint my comparison to people who are either around or slightly kind of lower in income than I am so that I feel fine with what I'm doing. And the same thing in terms of eating. Like maybe I imprint myself on the person who's sleeping well and who's eating well, and that way I'm kind of um, connecting their behaviors into mine is is there you know can we do that or does does that imprint sort of just naturally happen based on our communities? I, I think you can absolutely do that, and I love the thought of the way you're talking about the imprint because we we can choose to spend a little time with new networks where we think a group of people are doing a lot of social good in the community, or we think that um, they seem to be the most energized team at work working toward a common mission, or that seems to be a group who really cares about their well-being and energy so they can be more effective. And I, I, I'm pretty confident that if we are more conscious about not only spending time in networks that can do more good for us and for others, but that we think about our influence on existing networks that we're likely to be a part of for more years going into the future, that can have a pretty profound influence on how we feel each day and what we're able to do. One of the things that you talk about is how distracted we are and that in in some ways I don't I, this was one of the notes that I took I don't know if it's my language or yours but it's a huge competitive advantage if we're someone who's focused undistracted and focusing on less. And 
And it's those may not have been your exact words, but that's one of the things that I got from Are You Fully Charged? And what I'm wondering about is, again, you know, like most of my questions, how do we actually make that happen? So I look at my list and I look at, you know, I've got a couple hundred emails that I have to look at or I've got, you know, X numbers of things I need to do. And if I really look at it, I think I've got so much to do. How am I going to really get it all done? And then an email comes in or a phone call comes in and it's very hard not to be distracted by that. Tips on how we could um, pragmatically uh, incorporate that non-distraction into our lives in a way that allows us to really be focused on one thing at a time. Yeah, I think we, we need as a society to kind of acknowledge the rising challenge and the degree to which we're currently wired for distraction as a default, and that's only going to continue to worsen. There's no signs that's getting better. And so we've got to take some ownership to say, I mean, one of the pieces of research that I found most compelling just kind of visually as a metaphor from the uh, documentary we were working on is when you take a phone and place it on a table, smartphone, even if it's powered off, it's not ringing, it's not dinging, it's not vibrating, that sends a message to the other three, four people around a room, whether that's your dinner table at home or whether that's a meeting in an office, and it tells them that you don't care as much about what they're saying and it degrades the quality of the conversation statistically. And so we've got to take some responsibility to say, I mean, just for the sake of the conversation and relationships, keep your phone stowed away. Make sure it's not ringing. It's, it sounds so elementary, but when you make a choice to be in a room with another human being, do as much as you can to make sure you actually pay attention to the person you chose to spend time with. And when we, when we focus on that and then say, okay, what are the things that truly have to break in or absolute emergencies? We can set the defaults in terms of our uh, do not disturb on our phone and our ringers and whether we have a browser window open with a social network in our email or not so that, one, it allows us to pay attention to other people, which is probably most important. And then, two, it allows you to spend, I mean, even 5 or 10% of your day, let's say, as an initial goal where you spend initiating new things. That could be initiating a conversation with a colleague. It could be writing an email. It could be a handwritten note thanking someone. But if you can even spend 5 or 10% of your day initiating new things, that's better than most leaders I spend time with get to do. I love that. I think that's a really important point and profound and simple, right? This idea like if you just do three or four new things, initiate new movement or new action in a certain way, that's what changed the trajectory of, of what you're doing. I really love that. Let me ask one last question um, because I, I really love what you talk about and I think it's so true that the um, amount of well-being that we get, it's remarkable how the briefest interaction can fundamentally cover our pers- uh, to color our perspective, positive or negative. And, and that, you know, we ultimately someone does something, a, a little thing, good or bad, and we could perseverate over it for, you know, the rest of the day. And I think that's so important, and it's important both in terms of how we choose to act with other people, but it also left a question for me, which is how can we recover when someone does or says something to us that may not have even been intentional, but it's one of those brief moments that fundamentally colors our view of of life for some period of time. How can we recover from that? I love that question, and it's a, it's a unique one that I don't think I haven't spent enough time and most people don't spend enough time thinking about because the research that I've looked at suggests that 
I mean, one negative interaction, even if it's with a, a stranger when you're in line at the grocery store, that counts about five times as much as a positive interaction. So the negative interactions have, carry a much heavier load and have a much bigger detriment on your day than a bunch of positive ones. And so we do need to acknowledge that and figure out how we can blunt the effect is one part of it, I think. And the other part is how can you quickly offset it with three, four, or five positives. So you get up to, there's kind of a threshold in the literature I've studied where you need about 80% of your interactions to be positive just because those negative interactions boost our cortisol production and cause that fight or flight response and get us all riled up. And for some people, I think they, they linger even longer than they do for others. So, um, you know, I've, I've started practicing my response to your question in real life over the last few years. And, uh, I'm, I'm blind in my left eye and left side. And so I bump into people all the time in crowded spaces. And over time, what I've learned is that, you know, it's more of a social experiment for me now into how can I get that other person back to a good place as quick as possible. And I've, I've kind of studied the psychology over, over time. So I have my well-rehearsed script of apologizing profusely, trying to diffuse the situation. But when someone else is really wound up and frustrated and negative, what I've realized is that the last thing I want to do for my well-being, for his well-being, or for anybody that we subsequently interact with throughout the day to the social network part we were talking about is to escalate that hostility on either end of the conversation so that that turns into something worse. So I think what we can do is, I mean, there's obviously to step back and take a few breaths and realize that is it really worth creating a lasting physiological response in your own body and brain for the rest of the day when someone else does something that you perceive as a threat? Um, and then to say, if possible, can you take a few breaths and even turn it around so that you might do something that takes things in a better direction for the other person if you set your own needs aside? Because that's really the part that we can control in my experience. You know, it's interesting because you've said two things that I think are, are really – I mean, you've said a lot, but two things in this last answer that's that's are really interesting. You know, one is to really view life as a social experiment. So if if something happens and you begin to play with your response, your focus isn't on being perfect. It's on seeing what result you get. And that in and of itself changes your perspective. If you're beginning to play with the science of how one thing I say impacts another person, then there's no wrong answer. You're playing, you're a scientist. Failure gives you as much information as success and your whole framework changes. And then the other is, you know, it reminds me of, um, I wrote this article at some point about a, a father that um, was yelled at by his son and then his daughter, I mean, I was just watching this in the street and then his daughter asked a question and he yelled at his daughter and how seamlessly we take the energy that we've received from one person, put it onto the other. And that, that seems like it's a, it's a inflection point of a choice to say, wow, this, I just got a hit of negative energy from someone. I'm, maybe I'm not going to change that person. Maybe that's uh, uh, a lost battle, but let me look for someone around me that I could put a boost of positive energy onto. And if I do that, that will change me as much as it changes them. And it changes the flow of what would normally be, you know, a downward spiral trajectory of negativity. That's a great, I love that. I think that's a good way to look at it. And the, I mean, I've, I've learned a lot in the last years by looking at everyday moments as kind of a a social experiment where I think consciously about how my 
responds, affects things, and it it brings some objectivity to it, but it also diffuses it a little bit. So that's it. I hadn't thought about it, but it's a really good way to look at it potentially. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. The most recent book, Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. Tom's uh, documentary is also out. Uh, Are You Fully Charged? Uh, is also a really great uh, video to look at. Tom, any way that you want people to reach out or, or connect with you in some way? Yes, they can find out more about the film in particular that's out on uh, FullyChargedMovie.com, and then there's uh, links to, to clips from that and info about all the books on TomRath.org. That's great. Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure and a fun discussion. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.